Hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Digital Guardian podcast, episode 21, if I'm keeping track correctly. <laughs> this week, we're joined by Andy Pendergast. He's the co-founder and VP of product at Threat Connect, of course, the popular threat intelligence platform. He's got almost, what, two decades of experience working in intelligence and computer network defense communities. He's also an author. He helped uh, write the Diamond Model for Intrusion Analysis. He's also an Army vet. Uh, Andy, am I missing anything here? <laughs> Cool. No, that's that's about right. I, I hope I don't have two decades yet. I, that makes me feel old. <laughs> I, I, I was 15 and I decided to, to level up a little bit. That's okay. My son is graduating from high school today or this this in next month. And it, it, it is making me feel old. I'm realizing how long I've been around. <laughs> so if you'd like, maybe we could just kick this thing off with maybe a little bit of uh, a quick background on maybe how you got your start and uh Maybe give us some rationale behind threat intelligence and what Threat Connect does, why a company, an organization would elect to invest in an intelligence platform. It's a lot of questions there, but maybe you can take it from there. Sure. Yeah. Let me, I guess, start with the first question with where I got my start. I, I don't know that anyone starts in threat intelligence. kind of had a blended background. I, I was in the army right out of high school started as a Chinese linguist and, and that that has its own story and that's a lot of fun. But along with that, you know, I was introduced into the signals intelligence world, which then led to bridges into more network analysis. And then in the mid two thousands, I really got involved in what is today known as threat intelligence. I don't, I don't know if we had that term at the time. But just being taking a proactive stance on tracking persistent adversaries in, in particular, connecting the dots, seeing what they did, how they did it, so that we could learn from them, better protect ourselves next time. So that was kind of the, the entry point for me in intelligence. As I moved, I was in the government space for a good amount of time. I, I did a stint in Symantec. And then me and a couple other guys, some of them that have been on your podcast before, did a, uh, you know, started a, a startup back in 2011 that ultimately became Threat Connect. Now, the reason reason for Threat Connect, and you know, I, we can talk about that a bit. I, I, I know uh, I don't want to make it a, a commercial. The reason for Threat Connect really was a scalability problem. There were lots of smart folks in the industry working on doing things like we were doing, tracking adversaries so that we could be proactive against them in the future. But um, most of the knowledge that was held, those individuals were usually in spreadsheets. It was all very manual. And oftentimes, as folks switch, switch jobs, as they tend to do, because salaries are high and it's tempting to you know, switch, switch teams every couple of years, a lot of institutional knowledge would be lost as folks were leaving and moving around. So we sought to build Threat Connect to, one, automate a lot of the drudgery that those analysts had to go through. As I mentioned, there are a lot of smart folks in the space, but they tend to have to spend their time doing a lot of not-so-smart things. Uh, we want to make that easier for them and automate as much of their process in creating or refining or vetting threat intelligence, as well as, and probably most importantly, leveraging threat intelligence to inform operational decisions. And, and that's really the, uh, the philosophy behind Threat Connect. One of the things that we tend to run into a lot with, with customers and opportunities and just across the industry is you know, having coffee or beers with folks is, well, 
threat intelligence, it, it's, it's understood to a certain extent in the industry. I, I think it gets a, some, somewhat of a bad rap because of its strong association to IOCs, uh, indicators of compromise, which I, I think are kind of the bottom tier of what you, how you can use threat intelligence. But a lot of folks don't, especially if they're new to it, don't understand that there's more to threat intel than, than just that. I tend to want to make sure that they see the, the full value of a threat intelligence program, agnostic of product or anything else. Like, why would you invest, right? And I, I do like the term. It's a little bit of a marketing term, intel-driven defense, and being able to break down your defensive processes, align them to how intelligence can inform decisions in those processes at the operational level, at the tactical level, and strategic level. And those are those are kind of military terms, which if you, if you didn't come from an, a formal intelligence background or a, a military background might be a little bit obscure. But at the basic level, operationally, when you're blocking and tackling, literally, in, in the defensive space, threat intelligence can inform decisions, often at that base layer I was talking about before at the IOC layer, but also with signatures or just providing enrichment on alerts that are happening, for instance, in the SIM, or informing decisions on should I should I block this activity, should I should I quarantine it, etc. Tactically, maybe one one level above that, uh, and I, I tend to use examples on instant response and shortening response times and remediation times by leveraging knowledge of attacker tactic techniques and procedures or attack patterns. So if you, you know, if you see some malicious activity happening in the network and you can identify, okay, this is at this part of the kill chain and attackers like this or even this specific attacker tends to do X before this point so I know where to look so I can help scoop, scope the intrusion and maybe look for other things before the, detect- the activity that I've detected, but also being a bit predictive and saying, okay, well, I also know that he tends to, or that that attacker tends to go and do Y after this point in the kill chain. So now I can help prevent or limit the scope of an intrusion. And finally, strategically, being able to understand what the bad guys, the adversaries uh, want that they exist. Uh, that's kind of a you know, knowledge that the adversary exists is a, is a pretty good um, first step and that they have some capabilities and some intents, some intent to cause you or your business harm or theft, etc. That that understanding can help inform budgetary decisions with your entire you know, across your entire security construct for your business. And obviously, that that's true of both network security and uh, physical security as well. Knowledge of the adversary is, is really, or knowledge of the threats out there are, are prerequisite to understanding what you need to do to protect yourself against them. And then, you know, there's some really specific new, new capabilities I'm excited about with what Meyer's doing with the attack framework to perform gap analysis and new technology to see where, where you might have gaps in detection or prevention capabilities based on attacker capabilities. And then a really close, closely tangential to that is identifying if you can't protect everything, and likely you can't because everyone has limited budgets, what should you protect? You know, where, where should you layer your defenses around? What are your crown jewels based on the intent of what the known threats are going to go after? And that includes you know, person, personas, executive folks, or, or other key 
roles in the company may be dealing with IP or uh, ongoing business negotiations, et cetera. Yeah, the data custodians, if you will. Exactly, yeah. I was curious, if maybe you could talk more, maybe this may lend itself to the context aspect that you're discussing before, but do you ever run into an issue with just an overload of alerts and warnings? And I, I assume that you have to kind of try to boil all those down and, and try to obviously do some prioritization. Yeah, I almost want to say that that is one of the, the great failures of the threat intelligence as an industry, right? Not as a, a function or a idea, but as an industry to date, I, I think it's almost like the great lie of threat intelligence that it should help you lower the noise and up the signal, right? But oftentimes what you get is the opposite of that. You, especially at the IOC layer, if you're not really tuning what you're bringing in, you actually can create more noise. Lots of irrelevant alerts uh, added to your already huge stack of irrelevant alerts or potentially irrelevant alerts that need to be sifted through by human. However, intelligence done right, and especially at that operational layer with the TI, should should help lower the mean time that any human needs to have eyeballs on an alert or lower the amount of alerts altogether. So, uh, you know, feeds aren't bad, the source of IOCs. Feeds misused can be very bad. It can be a huge waste of time. However, if you understand what your intel requirements are, you understand what feeds are relevant for you, which ones are you know, have a high level of accuracy, you can actually use them to great effectiveness to say, okay, well, you know, to, to create high confidence alerts that should be looked at. Or for, for alerts that happen based on analytics in the SIM or, or something happening on a ER product, or, et cetera, right? Some other source outside of an IOC match itself, threat intelligence can certainly and should certainly help provide context to even a junior analyst looking at alerts coming in so that they can quickly assess, is this something I need to spend more time on? Do I need to escalate this? Or, you know, is this something I can go in and tune my, my SIM better so that I'm lowering them out of these types of alerts because it's only bringing in junk and my TI can inform me that that is junk. Will, do you have any uh, questions you'd like to lead, lead in on? Uh, yeah, Andy, it sounds like, you know, you've got a very practical approach to threat intelligence as a discipline. You know, I, I similarly, coming from the DOD side of the house, similar background, although not a linguist, share a lot of the same, uh, the, same va- the same values, I think. I'm curious what you think about the state of threat intelligence and, uh, and tradecraft uh, within the industry. I tend to believe that the term intelligence is bandied about a little too liberally within our industry. And what I mean by that is I don't believe that there's enough actual intelligence tradecraft associated with the work. And there's an awful lot of people running around using terminology, tools, ide- ideology, and idioms without actually having a full scope of understanding of what that means from cradle to grave as it relates to adversarial activity, characterization of that ad- and profiling of those adversaries, whether they're nation states or proxies or cyber criminals, what have you. And then subsequently being able to take that information that are that's more of a soft science and applying it to the only medium that, that's, that's relevant to cyber, and that's the hard science of bits and bytes. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that it's a concern to me because I've spent most of my adult life doing this type of work going back to the 90s, so I am old. <laughs> really nice. So it's a concern to me because what I do not want to see occur with this extremely valuable discipline is it, it becoming watered down and or commercialized to the point to where it is meaningless. I'll give you a couple of examples. I've already seen after RSA, which I was not at, 
I understand there was a, a rather controversial booth there wherein people were kind of touting certain ideas that are very real and have a very profound, specific relevance within the communities from which they came, specifically the APT and then latter, latter nation state actors being bandied about as though they were part of a snake oil salesman approach and that, you know, and tied to kind of a cure-all that would be associated with a snake oil salesman type of uh, scenario, right? And I've heard this, uh, you know, before with terms like people kind of, you know, going from, uh, I use APT, for example, being a term that was kind of legitimized by the U.S. Air Force, brought to kind of the market, very specific terminology, very specific nation states, uh, and subsequently uh, very specific actors within that nation state and proxy elements working on behalf of that nation state associated with that term. And later on, of course, that term was broadened. It was applied more liberally. Uh, then it became a case where people started to, because they didn't have the tradecraft, inordinately and oftentimes inaccurately identify things as APTs. And then that became a mockery, the subject of mockery. And then we started having weird Twitter handles and all kinds of other stuff <laughs> where people are mocking these things, but they're very serious. So what do you, what do you think about it? You know, as, a, as a founder and a leader in the space, what are your thoughts on those things? On one, one hand, marketers are going to market. That's what they do. Right. And, and we're going to get mad at it because we feel like it's maybe taking, making too light of, or, or those of us who are analysts or, or actually operational in this space are going to, I have mixed feelings about that, that type of activity too. And I, I think I know what booth you're talking about, but it could have been one of a couple actually. And, and I think that you're not going to get away from that. And it's not unique to our industry. There's always mis, misconstructions or, or, glossing over that that marketers try to do in order to make a message palatable to the masses. And and I'm certainly not making excuses for that, but I, I on one level I, I see it and it doesn't bother me as, as much as it used to. Maybe I'm just numb to it because I've seen it so much. What I think the potential damage there is these unmet expectations that that result from activity like that. Where there's this really strong tendency across the industry right now. And it's not so much with the vendors. I think the vendors promote it, but with actually with the practitioners or the folks that are just getting started with it, where there's this concept that in threat intelligence is something you buy, not something that you do. Right. And if all threat intelligence is, is something you buy and you can certainly buy intelligence sources, but it's up to you. It's still up to you with what you do with them. And some are certainly some technologies embed intelligence inherently, and that's great. Knowing how things work behind the scenes is, is sometimes very important in, in terms of that technology. That's a whole other thread in of itself as it can become snake oil. And there's been you know, several handful of vendors in the past five years, I think, that have kind of spun really quick up on, on while threat intelligence was raising up the hype cycle and then spun really quickly down again because the there was nothing there, right? And I, I think that the market regulates itself pretty well and can call BS on itself. It might take a year or so before that happens um, as, as buying cycles or typically subscriptions for a year or whatnot. But if, some, if a product doesn't provide value, and I, you know, I know this close to my heart as, as now in a product management role, if a product doesn't provide value in a subscription-based market, you're not going to get renewals, right? It's going to it's going to sit on the shelf, or it's going to get mocked, and you'll lose your subscription base. I think the market will regulate itself to some extent there, and maybe that's how I, I stay optimistic on the state of, of TI. I think the one thing that I 
I try to promote that the market isn't just going to naturally correct itself on. I think it takes education is, is really looking at intelligence, at least from a mature standpoint, as a process, something you do. And I completely respect different segments of the market, right? And mid-size, mid-small are going to have limited capacity to do threat intelligence, although there are some basics that I think can be done where, you know, maybe more mature organizations with larger budgets can and should make larger investments. Yeah, I bet, and that makes sense to me. I guess what I was really driving at, I was hoping I could get, you know, get your feedback on was as a discipline, right? Do you feel as though there's not enough tradecraft and there's not enough broad, deep and wide study of intelligence? I think so. Yeah, I think that it's, it's a symptom of that. I'm going to buy some threat intelligence and check that box. Good. Yeah, and that's that's something I've I've been I've been kind of thinking about for many years now, having been in this space for a long time, and kind of watching you know more and more people kind of broadly kind of swoop into the space with with little to no pedigree. And again, I don't know that you need, you need to have necessarily our backgrounds or comparable backgrounds to be good at this, but I think you do have to have uh, education, whether it's formal or whether it's you know on the job through mentoring through. And I just wonder sometimes if there aren't some really critical things that are either overlooked or simply stated, not even considered because they don't have the acumen. You know, it's it, and 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 really when when you're kind of force fed this ideology that in cyber, you know, intelligence equates to bad IPs and domains and maybe a hash or two, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that um, if you you can reference David Bianco's pyramid of pain there, you know, I think the state of the industry is stuck you know, on those bottom tiers with, with various flavors of IOCs and, and maybe some signatures as well. And, and that's, you know, one of my own personal goals is to, through, through the activity with the product and, and other, other things, raise up awareness of what threat intelligence can and should be as a function within a security team. I have the, uh, the product team with me, but I also have our customer success team, which is, you know, those are the guys on the ground that, work hand in hand with their customers and establishing their threat intelligence practice or processes internally, typically around around the product, but it's, it's to a large extent agnostic of that. And, and so we do a lot of coaching and on how to actually treat it as a process. What does that mean, right? And that involves, you know, first and foremost, leveraging well-established paradigms that have would be very familiar to anyone who's worked in the intelligence community or in DOD working with intelligence or you know, other similar nations working with intelligence. And so like key is the intelligence cycle, right? And making sure that the team recognizes what that is and knows how to leverage it, starting at the beginning, identifying who their customers are. I use that term all the time that you, you know, I, I don't think, especially folks that aren't familiar with the intelligence community understand that as the intelligence function, you are a supporting function of security, which in itself is a supporting function of the larger business and the business processes that have to happen in order for whatever for-profit company needs to survive or even a non-profit company and their missions. In some ways, that also puts intelligence functions in a precarious spot because they are a cost center on top of a cost center, right? So they have to be able to provide value very clearly, and I, I, I see it commonly that if all the value that you can really articulate is, well, I, I brought this many feeds into the organization. It's a weak statement in front of the board of directors. One of the things that we try to do is make sure that 
our customers, know who their customers are internal to their organization and know how to serve them correctly. Right? Establishing intelligence requirements with them. Uh, and again, another very, something that would be very formal or very, very well-known process within the intelligence community is, is largely still foreign to folks just getting in the space, especially if they're coming from commercial, right? There's lots of guys or, and gals that are, uh, they grew up as incident responders, understand how to connect the dots tactically, but maybe don't have the, the formal background and training of saying, okay, well, you need to establish intelligence requirements for the organization. And then behind that, identify what collection requirements you can, can create that would potentially meet those in, intelligence requirements and then rate your, you know, rate your intelligence forces against those intel requirements as they come in and adapt your collection requirements as, as they happen. That whole collection management system, or sorry, collection management process is a system I think that's often somewhat foreign to folks, especially when they're thinking it's going to buy and be done. And then probably most importantly is establishing deliverables with those internal customers, with the SOC team, with the IR team, with risk teams, with larger security leadership, the CISO, uh, CSO, et cetera, and even up into the board. What what are you going to provide the organization that's going to keep them out of the news cycle, <laughs> out of the public news cycle, protect their business processes, and make them more efficient with their existing security practices? We had similar conversations with some of our other, other guests, you know, obviously Rich Barger being one, and uh, he and I talked at length about collections, processes, source identification, source uh, verification, you know, running, running the gambit with respect to what raw information versus intelligence product, right? And I think that that's a, there's a, that is something that, that's an area that I don't see a lot of amongst the converse, the conversational uh, parties or conver- conversants, I guess is a proper term, in the space where they're, those things are very important. Collections processes are very important. Daily intelligence briefs are very important for intelligence analyst teams as well as research teams, right? Understanding what the, where things are at uh, in terms of time and posture and priority and precedent on a global basis, with respect to theater and activity of certain entities within those theaters, those are really important, you know, and I think that um, it's just something that I've kind of been thinking about more and more for the last, I don't know, probably last five to seven years, I guess now that there's, there's an awful lot of conversation, uh, voluminous amounts. I mean, obviously it's gotten to the point where now it's, it's uh, like we mentioned earlier, there was a booth and (laughs) I didn't see the booth in live, but you know, it's becoming, it's becoming so I think commoditized uh, at least ideologically that people are starting to mock the veracity and the, and the realness of some of these things. It's like, well, you know, you really can't, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's like uh, some very serious things. And these print, these processes and these practices, the tradecraft, I think, is really where, where we've got some challenges. So, okay. So we think we've kind of beat that one with a, with a beat that one to death. So, you know, Andy, in your, in your, in your opinion, you know, when you're talking to prospective clients or when you're just talking to, to folks in the industry who want to uh, endeavor to get started with, a threat intelligence oriented program, you know, that complements their risk, their risk management program and all those kind of great things. Where do you, where do you, where do you direct them first? Do you kind of take the approach that they need to live off the land first within their own ecosystem and then start looking for complementary sources? And then, you know, what do do you think is, is the best path for success with regards to consistent, repeatable processes that yield a positive end? So I know I brought up the, uh, the Intel cycle already. And I, but I think that is the, you know, the answer is dictated by, by that, right? What are your intelligence requirements? And that should dictate where you look first. Oftentimes, you know, the majority of times, yes, they should live, they should find 
the intelligence or the raw materials for intelligence, the data um, already being produced in the organization, as that is going like the definition of relevant is is something affected you, right, and your your organization. So that is often a you know, a measuring stick against any external supplementary data sources you should look for. But there is some effort needed to send the data through the, I'll call it like the intelligence refinement process, right? I often use an analogy where data is like, data is like raw crude oil coming out of the ground, right? And you need to whittle it down and there's, you know, it, that kind of follows the data information knowledge, wisdom slash intelligence into that paradigm and doing pub 2-0, right? Even, but that's also very fundamental, but it, it takes some work to do that. And you might need to partner with internal analytics teams to do that. Or you just may need to get, you know, easy places to start. Look at past incidences. You know, if you have an IR team already or an IR function within within the organization, where do they keep records of what happened last? And and who's looking at those, right? That's the like one of the biggest gold mines you can get in understanding like, well, who are your adversaries? What are they doing? What are they doing to you? And then from that, you can grow out and say, you know, before you start um, writing checks to vendors, you know, what sharing organizations that uh, live in the same threat space as you can you be a part of, whether that's a, a something less formal like a listserv. I see a lot of good things still passed around listservs and shared there within trust groups, within ISACs and ISAOs, um, which might have membership fees, but are probably still less than um, what you need to get started with the external threat intelligence fee. But, you know, there's a good place for external providers as well, because unless you want to build your own NSA to keep situationally aware and keep abreast of everything else going outside, going on outside of your network, and very few organizations are, are poised budgetary-wise to, to be able to do that, to justify such an investment, you may need to supplement your internal resources with external sources, either to your service provider that has their own inherent intelligence or a vendor is providing it as well. And there's lots of criteria that you can know, go down and say, okay, this is, this is actually relevant for me or not. But the first thing you should look at is, does it meet my intelligence requirements? Is it relevant? And then is it timely? Is it structured in such a way that I can use it operationally? Do I care? Maybe you don't. Maybe you just want to help it supplement your briefs and that's okay. But your, your intel requirements will dictate all of that. And what, what deliverables you're creating for those internal customers will dictate all of that as well. Yeah, very good points. Chris, uh, anything else you'd like to add? I don't know. I was kind of curious if, you, if you've had like a main goal the last couple of weeks, months, I don't know, something you've been looking to identify. Is, is it just more cooperation, more trying to, I don't know, getting on the same page with, uh, with folks when it comes to doing these things? That's a great question. One of the, uh, the things I've been really trying to, to push and advocate both within our customer base, but also just in discussions I'm having with various ISACs, ISA nodes, and other folks that focused on how do we make the use of the most use of threat intelligence is really establishing a feedback loop between ops and intel. And again, that's that's probably a paradigm that's probably somewhat familiar to me when coming out of DoD or the intel space that maybe J2 should support J3, the intel function should support the ops function. And as I kind of hit on before, the intel function should receive feedback in terms of was this a good report, but also feedback in data from the ops function that, you know, that they can then refine back into intelligence as a cycle. 
as as the ops guys or and gals are having contact with with the adversary or with threats, either keeping them out or, or dealing with them once they get in, they're learning about what those threats are and capturing that knowledge. And it's important, and it's it's one of the biggest missing pieces I see due to the state of the industry, right? Where you know, all the threat intelligence function is doing is facilitating the import of external data. It's only half the battle, right? Where they're not, we're not, they're not doing the other part. They're not learning and building a, a story of what's relevant from what the ops teams are up to and what they're learning. Battles that they're doing. Again and again, I, I, I see that light bulbs tend to click pretty quickly when you have the discussion, but it's often you know there's a there's a struggle there because of the cultural divides. Between ops and intel, it's funny that those exist in the military too. I think they, they're very prominent in a lot of enterprises uh, that we talk to. Different budgets, different backgrounds and skill sets, especially if um, you've got a less technical intel team. I do think having the right technical skill set to complement the more strategic thinkers is important within an intel team supplementing SecOps or assisting SecOps. And then you know, getting into the uh, repeat what I've already said a million times, but not having your goals or requirements laid out is uh, you're not delivering what's needed because you don't know what's needed. So having having that use of synergy, that, that cooperation between ops and intel and the back and forth between them, the feedback loop, is as much a people and process problem as it is a technology problem. And the people in process are, are often quicker wins once everyone kind of lays down their swords and realizes they're on the same team. And I, I always push the Intel guy, uh, Intel guys and gals to act as servants first, right? Take a servant mind that you are a supporting function. You're helping them do their job better. And you make them look good. So don't try to grab the glory and keep them. There's enough silos already. You don't need more. And Intel doesn't work well in silos anymore. So when you ask, like, what's what's the one thing I've, I've been focused on, I think that's the, the problem uh, that I've been advocating a solution for. So let's, you know, at, at the people, process, and technology level, let's start working together seamlessly between ops and intel. Yeah, those, those really, they really ought to be integrated, integrated, you know, processes. We've talk, covered a lot of ground. <laughs> what do you think, you know, for... If you were talking to a room full of CISOs right now, and they were telling you, you know, kind of what their what their struggles are operationally and otherwise, where do you think you would tell them to invest the most time and energy as it relates to cyber threat intelligence today? And where do you think they need to they need to do so? You know, to, they need to do so understanding that the majority of their staffs probably don't have that that kind of formalized training that you were, you and I were talking about earlier with Chris. Do you think that they need to invest more in the skills set and the tradecraft side of the house? Because technology can be can be acquired and it can be optimized by vendors or by internal parties and turn, turned up and tuned in and, and kind of applied? Or do, you, or do you think they need to kind of put all their eggs in the technological basket? It's kind of a softball. Oh, yeah, no, like, I would probably punch anyone in the face who said they need to put all their eggs in the technology basket. <laughs> you know, that's like the, the first mistake everybody makes, right? It's, oh, I'm going to you know, silver bullet this with a solution. Right. And there's no such thing, at least when it comes to intelligence, certainly technology that can help. 
But you mentioned people, I think I mentioned to people process and technology, like people first, right? Invest in the right skill sets, whether that's hiring or training. And there's some, you know, there's some, like SANS has a great course on cyber threat intelligence led by Rob Lee and I think a cadre of other uh, instructors that's pretty well respected. And there's plenty of other vendors out there that are also ready and willing to train on that. And of course, consultancy groups that you a well-funded CISO could bring in and say, hey, here's how you can do this. I think that that would be the first place I'd look. And then, you know, out- outsourcing also has its place. You can outsource some functions of an Intel team. And I think there are some providers of that. You can never outsource ultimate responsibility, right? You can outsource some tasks. Uh, I guess you can delegate responsibility. But ultimately, you can't outsource accountability is probably the better word. And you certainly can't outsource the consequences if you misalign something outside of your team or with either technology that you're bringing in or some other solution. But I, you know, I know that there are a lot of well-respected service providers that can also come in and supplement skill gaps, either not necessarily with a, a seat methodology, but just providing the expertise in and coaching and, and maybe even providing some of the functions of an Intel team or for the SOC or the larger security team. Excellent. And uh, if you had to, if you had to pick one threat, you know, today, I know it's kind of difficult. And if, if and if you say ransomware, I'm going to I'm going to shame you. No. <laughs> if you had to pick one threat today that CISOs needed to be uh, penultimately concerned with, what would that threat be, and why? Oh man, that's really a tough one because it depends. You know, CISOs in what sector, right? Like there's there's different threat landscapes that everyone. And knowledge of that is probably the first thing. Like, you'll answer with a, a, a wittyism like the threat is like the lack of knowledge itself of what your threats are, right? <laughs> like if you don't know that yourself, maybe you should figure it out and start learning or start reading up on yourself. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of new emerging things that are should, should also so should be concerned of whether you know, you could say insider threat that's probably somewhat universal and will never go away. I can pick from the list of the latest, you know, the, the crypto mining stuff. If you want, if you don't want to hear ransomware, uh, that seems like it's a problem. But ultimately, that that answer is going to vary CISO to CISO and organization to organization, and and it should. Yeah, rightly so. That's a good answer. Like I said, I, I, I would have been I would have been sad and upset, and, and perhaps prone to, to to chastise you if you said ransom ransomware. <laughs> I that chastisement. Yeah. <laughs> no, Andy, this has been really great. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on, on the show with us. I think we'd love to get uh, some of your other folks on at a later date, too, to kind of talk more about research-oriented topics as well. It's been a really great experience having you on, getting your getting your insights and, and your background, especially with the, with the U.S. Army. One thing I didn't get to ask you about was... What do you think? I have I have my own opinions about this, but what do you think today's the relevance is and the weight the weighting factor is of linguistics capabilities in a modern cyber threat intelligence program? Ooh, I like that. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I'll admit that was my bridge in was oh, you know Chinese? Well, we happen to care about Chinese language or whatever. So, I think that that and other types of soft skills are vastly underappreciated, but often very necessary, right? Google Translate's only going to take you so far. And having um, someone who understands the language and also the culture of you know, where the threats might be emanating from, 
regardless if they're state sponsored or not, right? At any level, primary or whatever, understanding the language they speak is critical in taking a proactive approach to your security. Whether again, that that function might be outsourced; it might be something you rely on an external source for. But um, getting getting to really know the adversary requires you know, to speak their language, literally. Yeah, I think I think that that's honestly, I think it's it's an area that's that's truly underserved. And I wonder, because again, it's one of those things that, you know, guys start with kind of our backgrounds and then working in the beltway, you know, in the commercial side of the house, probably more keenly aware of than a lot of other people, especially in the pro- coming from the products, the product space, but um, in the services space. But uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are with getting that type of capability to market and whether or not you're seeing vendors advocate and introduce and integrate that that capability as part of their overall solutions. I'm only aware of a few commercial vendors that do that really well. I won't mention them because I don't want to plug anybody today. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we, but, we work with the vast majority of Intel providers in, in the space just by, by our function. And so we have relationships with many of them and, and kind of understand some of their, their strengths um, in, in there. And most have some sort of talking point to it, at least. I think it's worth anyone who's looking to um, invest in an intelligence provider to understand what what their capabilities are with language, right? There are walls you hit with uh, doing research that you can't read natively or read read this website or understand that these strings are actually encoded in another, you know, Unicode in another language that's embedded in malware. Like, you slow down your research and miss things very easily. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, uh, Chris, do you have any closing thoughts or final words for Andy? Not really. This was kind of enlightening. This is uh, great stuff. Good. <laughs> I mean, that's how it should be, right? Yeah, that's great. That's how it should be. This was a pleasure, Chris. Well, thank you also for your time. 